I'm often tried to imagine what it was like for the early churches uh, to receive a letter from one of the apostles. Uh, what would that have been like in that particular gathering, that particular service that had been set aside? And we have to understand that, that the early churches, they didn't have copies of the Bible in pews, padded pews in front of them. Uh, primarily what they had were maybe some copies of the Old Testament. Uh, if they were connected to a synagogue, they would have scrolls that would have the Old Testament and they could, they could read from that with the fresh eyes and fresh understanding of the, the Christ Jesus being the Messiah. But as far as what we have in the New Testament and Gospels and letters, they didn't have those things yet compiled in the way in which we have them. But every once in a while, one of those teachers would show up at their church. Every once in a while, Paul would show up, or he would send Timothy or Titus, and they would spend significant time, two, three weeks, maybe more, teaching them and helping them to gain understanding of what the gospel is and who Christ is. Uh, but what I imagine was a moment of, of great rejoicing was when a letter would show up. When the, when the elders of the church would get up and say, we've got a blessing this week because we received a letter from John. We received a letter from Peter. We received a letter from the Apostle Paul. And then they would stand and they, they would read the letter to the congregation of the people. And, and what many historians, church historians believe is they would, they would copy that letter and they would send it on to other churches in their area so they could have copies of this particular letter, these particular truths. And then they would spend, I imagine, the, the next weeks and maybe months just looking at those truths, discussing those truths, thinking about those things that the Apostle Paul had shared in that particular letter with him. And today we begin such a letter, the letter to the churches of Galatia. And I would like to begin our series by recreating that experience at least a little bit. Uh, we do have padded pews, and we do all have copies, and so if you want to follow along as I read the letter to the Galatians, you can use a pew Bible, 913 is the page number. If you want to just experience the words and just take it in for yourself, uh, that's your prerogative. You do this however you want to do, but I want to begin in Galatians chapter 1, and I want us to consider the content of this letter. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed." As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and, and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Well, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation and set before them, through privately, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought us in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though uh, through the law I, I died to the law so that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being protected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that this that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the, that is written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to the offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise 
by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of the bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy? By telling you the truth, they make much of you, for, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now. And change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she 
is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, as she's our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as in that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And so brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word, share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Before we leave today, I do want to cover a few introductory points with you as we think about the letter to the Galatians. First, we need to consider the author of the letter. A Roman-style letter is much different than letters that we have been taught to write in our own Western, modern education system. We start our letters with uh, who we're writing to, Uh, my dearest faith. And then we have content. What are we writing about? And in that content, I come up with this. Uh, I ate all the cookies. We need more cookies. And then at the conclusion of the letter, uh, we put who is writing the letter, who the author is, uh, your hungry husband, Josh, something along those lines. 
Uh, that's our style in which we have learned. A Roman style is distinct and different. You might have noticed this as you read through the epistles that you find in the New Testament. It always begins with the author of the letter, which quite honestly makes more sense than our style because what's the first thing you want to know when you receive a letter? Who's writing the letter? And they introduce themselves in the immediate. And Paul says, it is me, I am Paul, the apostle. I'm writing this to you. This is the same Paul who was formerly known as Saul. We're introduced to this character in the book of Acts when he is overseeing the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the church. A couple of chapters later, Paul has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. You can read about this in Acts chapter 9. Also, just this last week, we read in Acts chapter 26 as Paul recounts this event as he stands before King Agrippa. And it's because of these events and the miraculous surrounding Paul's conversion to Jesus that he is considered and considers himself an apostle. I want to read to you uh, Paul's statements that he makes in his defense before King Agrippa from Acts 26. He says this, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Remember, he was going to, to persecute the Christians in that area. And at midday, O king, I saw on my way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And rise up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. An apostle is a title that's given to anyone who is given an immediate, uh, a direct, uh, a specific sending by Jesus. Apostle means one who is sent. And so when we look into the Gospels and the transition into the book of Acts, we recognize that the 12 disciples were apostles. They, we, we call them disciples, but they get a name change. Why? Because Jesus commissioned them specifically to take this gospel to the nations when the Spirit would come. And it's because of the immediate, direct, and specific commission that Jesus gives to Paul in Acts 9, what we just recounted in Acts 26, that he's considered to be an apostle. He says this of his own apostleship to the Corinthians, though. He says, last of all, Jesus appeared uh, to one untimely born. He says, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So one of the questions we have to ask as we look at the beginning of the letter is, why does Paul introduce himself as an apostle from line one? Well, he goes on to say a few more things in verse one. Notice that he says, I'm not an apostle from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. 
At the outset of the letter, Paul mentions his apostleship, seems to be defending it by saying, I didn't get this title from Peter. The churches didn't give me this title. This comes from Jesus, the the Jesus that God raised from the dead. He pulls out the resurrection card. This is serious. Why? Well, because as we begin to unpack the contents of this letter in the coming weeks and in the coming months, we will learn that there were certain false teachers who were engaging in these churches who were teaching that Paul is not a real apostle. That Paul, he doesn't have authority. And they were teaching doctrine contrary to what Paul had taught. They were teaching a gospel that was contrary to what Paul had taught. And so from the outset of the letter, he wants to make very clear It's on the authority of the resurrected Jesus that he is called to be an apostle. He is a voice of authority when it comes to doctrine and matters of the church. But who's he writing to? He says to the churches in Galatia. Now Galatia is not a city. Uh, When Paul wrote to uh, the letter to the Philippians, he was writing to the church in the city of Philippi or or Romans, the, the, the church in the city of Rome. Galatia isn't one city, it's a region that makes up many cities. In fact, it was Paul's initial missionary journey that he went on with Barnabas that took him through the region of Galatia. Uh, You can read about that, and I would encourage you to take some time this week to look at Acts 13 and 14, particularly 14. And this is where we learn about how he went to the cities of Iconium, uh, Derbe, Lystra. And it was in these towns that they came and they, they preached the gospel. And it's important to note, as you would look at the history in Acts, that there was great opposition that came in those towns. The Jewish uh, leadership and the synagogues did not want Paul there preaching Christ. And in Lystra, they actually drug him out of the city and they stoned him. They presumed he was dead. It's possible that he was dead. But he recovers, miraculously moves on to the next city. What I love about that story um, is they go down this, this line and end up in the last city And he had just been stoned in the middle of these. And he says, well, let's just go back. (laughs) And he goes right back. He goes right back to Lystra. uh, And he continues to encourage the church and the people. That's the Apostle Paul. And I bring all of that history up because it's it's quite possible that that strong Jewish-led opposition to Jesus is what is now infiltrated into these churches. And it's trying to twist and distort the gospel. And so Paul is still battling those same individuals, those same people. And so he encourages them. He he challenges them. He says, man, I love you. And you you, you heard that in the letter, his his love for these people. I I nearly gave my life for you, he says. And, And more than, bigger than that, Jesus did give his life for you. So I encourage you, This week, maybe read Acts 13, Acts 14. Maybe familiarize yourself with the geography. Pull out your maps and look and see where these churches are. It's modern-day Turkey. But you can see that the path that Paul took just helps familiarize you with the context. But finally, what we see in the introduction is Paul's impassioned prayer for the Galatians. Paul's letters always begin with a prayer. 
And this particular prayer, he prays for two things. He prays that they would have grace, and he prays that they would have peace. Grace and peace. He says, grace to you. Peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of the Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Truthfully, these words, grace and peace, they would merit their own series. These are words that so encapsulate the the whole of Scripture, the whole of the character of our God. Old Testament to new. And Paul means them here to be a summation of the whole of the Christian life that we're called to live. Grace is what keeps sinners and rebels like us out of hell. It's what delivers us from the judgment that we deserve. It's grace. Peace runs deep into Judaism, into the Old Testament, the famous greeting, the famous goodbye. It's kind of the aloha of the Old Testament. It, it means whatever you, you intend it to mean. Paul prays this over them, that this idea of, you know the word, shalom. Right? Shalom. That you will have wholeness in your life. That your life will be complete. That your life will be filled with joy. But both of these things that are prayed, both the the grace and and the peace come with a cost. And what is the cost? He says it in his prayer. It's the life of Jesus. The cross of Christ. There is no grace apart from Jesus' sacrifice. There is no peace apart from an empty tomb. We only find the fulfillment of these things in Jesus. Jesus gave himself so that the the Christians, first century, Galatia, we who are sitting here today, might be delivered. That's the word he uses in his prayer. Another word we could put in there, we might be free. The title of this series as we're going to move page by page, verse by verse, through the book of Galatians is we are free to move forward. Why? Because of Jesus. Only in him. And we'll discover that at every turn of the page. It's only because of Jesus' death on the cross. It's only because of his resurrection. And it's because of Jesus' sacrifice. And the freedom that he has bought for the Galatians, the freedom that he has bought for us, that he is the one, notice how Paul ends with this doxological statement, he is the one to receive glory forever and ever, for all time. That's why we're gathered here today. We're gathered here today to give Him glory, to make much of Him. I didn't come here today to say, I was a pretty good Christian this week. And you didn't either because we know truthfully, it's probably not the case. We're here today because we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And we want to exalt his name. I love that song, King of Kings. And I, one, of the, one of the things I was thinking about as we were singing that, it, it walks us through the history. It walks us through the scripture. And then on that last verse, it shows us our place. Then the church was born and the spirit lit the flame. And then it concludes with what? Glory and worship forever and ever. Because we're going to continue to do that. That's why when you wake up tomorrow morning, you should pray a prayer of thanks for the freedom you have in Jesus. 
Why? To give Him glory, to make much of Him. That's why when you have your meal later today, you should bow your head in gratitude and say, thank you for providing for me. Why? Because it brings Him glory. Because it makes much of Him. That's why this week when you stare down temptation and sin and you find victory through the promises of God, through the presence of the Spirit at work in your life, you should shout, you should sing a song of praise. Why? Because it's all about His glory. It's all to make much of Him. I think you get the point. Today my prayer is Paul's prayer. My wish is His wish. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin this study, there's much grace to be received. There's much peace to be had. As we encounter week in and week out a crucified but risen Savior who sets us free. Would you bow with me this morning? I want to give you a moment now to pray. One thing I want you to specifically, particularly pray in this moment is God, as we begin this study, I need grace. Give me grace. God, as we begin this study, I want that shalom. I want that fulfilled life, that complete life. I want to find that in Jesus. Ask him. You may have other things you need to pray about in this moment, but that's one thing I want all of us to pray in this moment. For grace and for peace through Christ. Father, from the beginning, we offer this series to you Sounds silly, you've, you're the one who's offered us these truths. You've authored this book and preserved it so that we might study, so that we might know you and make you known. But God, we realize that as we move through this year, we're gonna be looking at these, these truths, these words. Help us to rightly divide them. Help us to, to be faithful to the gospel you've entrusted to us. Help us to be obedient. Doers of the word, not just hearers. Help us to live in the freedom that, that Christ has bought. Not for our own selfish gain, but, but for your glory. For the advancement of your kingdom right here in this congregation, in this community, and across the globe. God, we pray as we will pray every week before we open up to the book of Galatians that you would use your words mightily in our lives and in this congregation. Thank you for Jesus. As we've already sang, as has already been mentioned by Tori, we are so thankful for Savior. 
Thank you that he has delivered us. God, help us this week to make much of him. And so God, I pray for the people that I love right here. God, that you would give grace to them. That they would know and experience the peace that can only come from the cross and empty tomb. I pray that for me, and I pray that for my brothers and sisters. And we pray it in Jesus' name.